So we've been tracking with a people, an ancient people, even older than the ones George talked about, people from around 1500 B.C., a people who've entered a covenant with God, people whom God has rescued, people who've lived for generation after generation after generation in slavery, people for whom God raised up a leader named Moses who brought them out of slavery into a place, now on a journey to that place, God's made a promise to them to go before them, to protect them, provide them. They've made a covenant to Him. They've pledged allegiance to Him. They've made a promise that they would live like His people. It's really that simple. That was the covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's it. Today, we're going to look at just a short simple set of instructions God gives to His people, and then we're going to see why. I think it will be clear. That's what we're after today, clear and simple. I have a reputation for making the simple complex, and so today I'm going to do my darndest for keeping the simple simple. Well, you stand with me, and we'll hear God's Word and just let our bodies show just a sense of re- respect and reverence toward his word. So if you're able to stand, stand with me. If you're not able, then that's, that's great. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you're to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, First Olympics, right there. Purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Acadia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then, have them build a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. You may be seated. So God tells Moses, build me a tabernacle. And he says, the community's going to have to pay for this. This isn't going to float down from heaven. Build it. Pay for it. They had to bring the supplies in. The supplies that they're bringing in were very costly. Many of the, those weird gems and products that I just read were rare. They were costly. They cost the people sacrifice, many of them. He said, use only the, not only the best materials, but the finest craftsmen. Use the best labor you can find. And he says, you've got to build it according to specs. I will tell you how to build it. The details mattered to God because this this building, this tabernacle, was going to tell a story about God. And God wanted that story to be clear, simple, a representation of who God was. And He tells them why. It's in verse 8. Have them make a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. 
So the question is, why would God have them build it? Because I want to dwell among them. So is he saying, I'm only going to live in this tabernacle. If you want to come find me, that's where I'll be. No. God was a lot bigger than what they were about to build. He was already there. He had been there from infinity. But he says, I want this tabernacle, this sanctuary. When people come to it, I want they, when they see it, I want them to think of me. When they walk up to it, I want them to enter it reverently. When they enter it, they're going to have to make a reservation. They don't just walk in this thing casually or flippantly. I want it to represent my being, my presence among them, my, my character. And so he begins outlining what they're, how they're to build it and what they're to put in. He says, put the ark in it, the ark of the covenant. He tells them how to build that. It, it symbolized the throne of God, the throne place of God. It contained precious artifacts like the Ten Commandments, the, the real stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written. They were in that. It was in this box that had a cover on it. It, was, it came to be called the cover of atonement. The lid of that box, it represented God reconciling men and women to Him through the spilling of blood. On that lid, on that atonement cover, there were two cherubim, these eagle-looking attendants. They represented drawing mankind to God. They were looking at each other. They wanted people to see God's enthronement. Then he says, make a table and put bread on it. He called it the bread of presence. It was 12 loaves representing the 12 people groups of this tribe. It was to represent God's dwelling, His presence. They were there to be a perpetual offering to God, a portrayal of a community who had pledged. He said, put a lampstand in there. I want the lamp to, to represent my illumination, my, my glory, my lighting up, my people. And he says, in the center of the tabernacle, you're to build two rooms. One's called the holy place, and within that holy place, there's a most holy place. The most holy place. He says, build it like a perfect cube. Architecture majors, 15 by 15 by 15. It only had one thing in it. The Ark of the Covenant. It was God's throne room. It was the inner room. It was the inter-sanctuary. It was practically untouchable. Only one person could go into the most holy place. The high priest. And only one day a year at that. In fact, it was so sacred they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. If the people had unconfessed sin when the high priest went in that on that special day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would wear bells on the bottom of his robe. As long as the bells were ringing, they knew he was moving about. They were good. If the bells stopped, they started pulling on the rope. The holy place, it, it surrounded the most holy place. It was like God's royal guest chamber. It's where other priests entered where the bread and the lamp and where there was incense burning. It represented the prayers of the people 24-7 before God. There was a curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. No one went past the curtain except the high priest. You may be aware, some of you, that on the day Christ died, that curtain 
was ripped miraculously in two. One more piece I'll mention is the altar. I'm skipping several artifacts at the t- of the tabernacle, but there is an altar out there. It was made of bronze. It was for the rite of the burnt offering that we talked about last week if you were here. It was where the animal was sacrificed. It's where his blood was spilled. It's where people came in repentance and where God made atonement for their sin. The tabernacle was not a place for corporate worship. It was where you went and met with God as an individual. It was a place where God met alone, not accidentally, decisively. Reservations required. It was not a memorial or a shrine. It was a visible, tangible symbol of God among His people. A watching, hearing, dwelling God. You couldn't miss it. It wasn't supposed to be missed. It was right in the center of the community. When you walked up to it, you knew you were there. It was supposed to remind you of your promise. It was supposed to awaken you to the presence of God. It was supposed to startle you back into your identity as the people of God, to your mission, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a blessing to the nations. Most of all, it was there to, for you to acknowledge the God Most High, His redemptive involvement in your life and in your community, your pledge of allegiance. It was a clear and present presence. God wasn't the tabernacle. The tabernacle pointed to God. Anyone who wanted to see that could. It was simple. We don't have a tabernacle that we go to. We don't have an altar burnt offering or a lampstand or a table of showbread or any of that. But we do have something writer of Hebrews said it this way, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets various times, like that one, in many ways, like a tabernacle. But in these days, He has spoken to us how? Through His Son, through whom He created the universe. He says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, of His dwelling. We have Christ. So, I'm going to start landing the plane with like three really simple ways. Three artifacts. As I think about how are we displaying the presence of God dwelling among us? In that day, people saw the tabernacle. They knew what it represented. How are people in our community, in our lives, across the ocean, seeing Christ dwelling among us? I want us to learn from Jesus. This is going to be real simple. Three Jesus artifacts, things you can look at and know. The first comes from Jesus at age 12. Luke writes, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem. It was the Passover festival. 
When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival. So Jesus is 12. By the way, this is the only narrative we have of the life of Jesus before his public ministry. When he's 12. This is it. This is all we got. When the festival was over, his parents were returning home, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And they were unaware of it. Boy, SRS would have come and got them in a heartbeat now. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They, went, they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. See, people looked out for each other in that day. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, mom and dads, do the math, now it's four days. Can you imagine their prayers at night? God, we lost Jesus. We can't find him. Please help us. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Here's the artifact. Jesus was a curious learner. It's not the dominant one of the New Testament. It's just the one we're bringing out right now. See, some might argue Jesus' knowledge was so great. I mean, at 12, he's talking and people are amazed at his answers. But I would argue that his knowledge was so great also because he was a curious and avid learner. Of course, he had infinite knowledge available to him right there at hand at his disposal. But as we learn from the teaching of Scripture, Jesus emptied himself of like much of his God privileges. He learned and grew like a human being, a man, even though he was also God. He chose to not assert himself because of his deity or position. Instead, he became one of us. His humanity was not a clever like sleight of hand trick. He was curious. He was learning. He was asking questions. You know, people are drawn to that. Did you know that? Curiosity and humility. It's difficult to learn from people who've got it all figured out, isn't it? It's difficult. In fact, a lot of people are turned off by people who think they have it all figured out. I'm not suggesting we can't and shouldn't have confidence in Christ and communicate our fight faith in Christ to others. But confidence and humility are enemies. They're friends. They should be the best of friends. Christ was not lacking in confidence. But all the while, He was meek and lowly. We see that from His life. We cannot be proud and have a learning posture at the same time. A life anchored in Jesus that we talk so much about. It allows us to be curious. It allows us to be learners. It allows us to learn from anyone. It allows us to treat anyone with the dignity that we want. I've been surprised when I approach situations as a learner how much I learn. Sometimes even when I'm with people who I don't agree with, when I will stop and say, can I be a learner here? much I learn. 
Sometimes it's even been good for me not to respond when someone says something I don't agree with. Maybe in that situation it's good for me to learn. I've learned I have a lot more to learn. Yeah, sometimes I went into that situation. Jesus was a curious learner. Jesus artifact number two. It's on display his whole life. This is going to be as simple as dirt to you. It's all his teaching, all his traveling, all his works, all his ways were so thoroughly saturated with this condition. It's easy to miss it. It was so obvious. It's one of those kinds. Jesus, here it is. His life was about God. It was fully anchored in God. His identity was anchored in his relationship with God. He had, he had heard God the Father say to him, You are my son in whom I love. I am well pleased with you. You ever hear that from God? You are my daughter. You are my son. And I am so proud of you. I hope you do. That's where Jesus' identity came from, was in that affirmation. Jesus' prevailing commitment was to live in abiding unity with God, to be with Him, tethered. He spoke of that, doing everything He did in union, listening, conversing, talking with God. He talked about working in the authority of, that He came, had from His relationship with God. Jesus' ambitions were oriented around the things of God, things that mattered to God. He urged us to seek God and His kingdom first, to treasure the things God treasured, to care about what God cares about, to walk the narrow ways of God. Jesus came announcing the breaking in of God's kingdom that George referenced earlier, and He never stopped seeking it Himself, never. His life was about God's life. And he was never miserable. How about that? And this was not an obsessive mental illness. Jesus didn't have what's sometimes called scrupulosity, tormented with this religious, obsessive, compulsive disorder. No, Jesus actually lived in rhythm, a balanced and good life. He had fun with people. He played with children. So when I say his life was about God, don't hear me say you're supposed to only think about God. You're supposed to only talk about God. That you can't be interested in baseball or even football for that matter. You can enjoy your backyard. You can build a deck. You can care about math, for crying out loud. You can, you can be an engineer and a meteorologist. But here's what it does mean. Is Christ truly the visible center of your life? Is that an artifact in your life? Is your life about God? Is He the one you look to when you hurt, when you need, when you lack? Do you live in conversation and in friendship with Him? Do you confidently, quietly, maybe sometimes not quietly, purposefully live in Him? With and for Christ. And how would anybody know if you did or didn't? How would they know? You have to talk about God all the time so they know? Well, let's look to Jesus and let's look at the traits of His life. Things like faith, a quiet, trust-filled, personal confidence. Things like peace, personal peace, and peace with others. Hope, life-grounded optimism, a looking forward with anticipation. Love, 
truly wishing and working for the good of other people. Contentment, satisfied, even in times of lack. Contentment. Relationally, materially, health. Contentment. Sacrifice for the well-being of another. Joy. Gladness of soul. Patience. Long-suffering. Kindness. Goodness. The Apostle Paul said it this way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's how people knew Jesus was about God. It wasn't because he had to talk about him all the time. It's because his life was about him. You can't fake that very long. Life was about God. So, people see your life who are around you on a regular basis and say that about you. Artifact number three, Jesus lived for others' sake. His life was about God. His life was for others. He saw the tax collector in a tree. He approached a woman for a drink when he could have gotten it himself. He loved lepers. He healed the sick. He gave blind their sight to them. He forgave a woman caught in the act of adultery. He fed poor. He raised Lazarus. He surrounded himself with needy people who weren't on anyone's most favored list. And he stayed with them to the end. He cared for even corrupt religious leaders who opposed him by, by provoking them with questions. Jesus' life was not about Jesus. That sounds a little heretical, doesn't it? He lived for others. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. People like me and you. Hoping, hopeless, broken people who've lost their way. People who are quietly hurting that nobody else knows. People who have loss. People who are lonely. People for whom no one ever fully gets. Jesus sees that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for people. That, that's another way people knew God dwelled in him. Is how he treated people. How he was with people. He demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. And then after he died, why we still are sinners. He lives for us. We're moving towards that. Easter. He came as a man in love. He emptied himself of his divine privileges in love. He served in love. He taught in love. He healed in love. He fought the devil in love. He went without in love. He went to the cross in love. Life was about others. His life has always been, always was, always will be driven by love. And now as Ephesians charges, we're to be imitators of God and live lives of love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So are you, the question's easy. Like I said, it's simple today. Are you living for others? Or are you living for self? Simple question. I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm just saying it's simple. Is your life an artifact of service of love to others? So today our task has been simple, to bring to bear these simple ways. Being a curious learner, 
oriented our lives around Christ and living our lives for others. That's overwhelming, isn't it? It is to me to think about it. I fall so short. In fact, I'm going to leave this place looking like a preacher and I'm going to walk out the door and pretty good chance I'm going to start thinking about what I want. Anybody identify with that? Or I'm going to get frustrated when I don't get what I want. And I'm going to start whining. Maybe silently. I want to look, depends on who I'm with, right? I've come so short. But you know what? I can get better. And so can you. You you can become a better learner. You can orient your life more significantly around God and you can be for others more effectively, more honestly, more authentically. You know why? Because that's Christ's life in us. That's, That's the kind of people it produces in increasing measure. We don't have to worry about doing it perfectly. Will we let these things come to bear in our lives? Can our lives be an artifact, a representation? Can we hear God saying, build me a people? Build me a people. Start with Jesus. We've heard stories this morning of an ancient church of one of us living intentionally, purposefully, I guarantee it, not perfectly, with the gospel of Jesus, with the presence of God, dwelling as a tabernacle in a city that she can't even get into right now. We've heard this story. Build me a tabernacle. Make me known. Let others see me dwelling among you. Does that compel you? I hope it does. Let's pray. God, establish us as a people who are not about us, who are not trying to make our name great. Would you establish us as as a people that are displaying the beauty, the person, the character of Jesus? That's your word for us today. It's real simple. Build a life here, God. Make it about Jesus. Whether we got PhDs or whether we didn't get out of the eighth grade, make us that simple the way that we see us. Help us be an artifact of the dwelling of a good, good God who came for the world. We know there's a lot of details to work out. But would you start right here in this moment, in this quietness, in this place of this transaction if I want my life to be about you and I want my life to be for others. Do that work in us, God. We lift up this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.